fearsome worm and fairies at Penshaw Hill and the ghost of Nairsdale Hall. Welcome to episode 23 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Welcome back to Within the Boggart Wood. Just to let everyone know, this is likely to be the last episode of Year 1 of the podcast, with Year 2 starting at the end of February. I just want to say a massive thanks to all those who have listened to the podcast, and to those who have contributed through sending in stories and joining in on social media. A special thank you must also be given to the podcast's Patreon supporters. Your extra support really does mean a lot. Over the next couple of weeks I'll be researching and writing ready for the beginning of Year 2, Please bear with me and join in any chats and discussions on social media. I really would like any feedback it can give. Also, if you'd like to help the podcast reach more people, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. The more reviews on Apple, the more likely it is that it will appear as a suggestion to other Apple users. We'll start this episode with something a little different. On Saturday 19th of July 1828, the Durham County Advertiser published a poem called The Benighted Traveller. The author simply signed it with his initials, W.S. Tis when the witching time of night o'er nature draws a sable hood, pale superstition's phantom sprite reigns in the glen or haunted wood. Forsaken by the moon's mild light o'er lonely path or desert fell, no dwelling cheers the traveller's sight, nor soul the lonely way to tell. The time, the hour, and dreary place all press upon his soul with dread, echoes his faltering footsteps trace, and doubt and terror check his speed. Listening he hears, in fancy stealing, the robber from the forest glade, foe to man remorse and feeling, woe to him who meets his blade. Hark the mighty torrents roaring, Midst night silence fearfully, and the bird of night is wailing from ruin grey or lonely tree. Or when the moon beams through the trees, a ghastly lustre sheds around, and whistles the autumnal breeze a thrilling deep and mournful sound. It sounds like voices from the dead, who love to haunt some well-known spot, again life's former scenes to tread, though now they sleep unarmed forgot. Thus imagination wanders, where gloomy scenes of night displayed, whilst the mind in terror ponders, superstition lends her aid. Tis when the witching time of night, o'er nature draws her sable hood, pale superstition's phantom sprite, reigns in the glen or haunted wood. Today's first story delves into the mysteries surrounding Penshaw Monument in Sunderland. Penshaw Monument in Sunderland is a sight to behold, and one of Wearside's most famous landmarks. To the casual visitor, it looks as though the ancient Greeks decided to take up camp on Penshaw Hill. In fact, the monument was constructed between 1844 and 1845 to commemorate the first Earl of Durham, John Lambton, who had died in 1840. Lambton had been the Governor-General of British North America, and produced what became known as the Durham Report, 
which investigate the unrest in the Canadas between 1837 and 1838, with the subsequent reforms lending toward the Act of Union in 1840 when Upper and Lower Canada were merged into one province, causing outrage among the Tory elite at the time. The monument, begun four years after the Earl's death, was designed by John and Benjamin Green and built from local gritstone. The foundation stone was laid by the second Earl of Zetland, Thomas Dundas, in a Freemasonic ceremony that drew thousands of onlookers. The monument was based on the Temple of Hephaestus in Athens, and looks every bit a Greek monument. I'll put a photo in the episode description so that you can all see it. One of the columns contains a spiral staircase that leads up to a walkway, but in 1926 a boy fell from the walkway to his death, and the staircase was closed to the public. On Wednesday 17th of April 1926, the Newcastle Evening Chronicle read, Penshaw Hill Monument, which was the scene of a sad accident on Easter Monday evening, a 15 years old boy named Templey Scott being killed through falling from the top, a distance of 70 feet, is one of the most prominent landmarks in the county of Durham. It was erected to the memory of John George Lambton, 1st Earl of Durham, who died at Cowes on July 28, 1840. The foundation stone was laid on August 28, 1844, by the Earl of Zetland, Grand Master of the Free and Accepted Masons of England, and the monument, the design of which was copied from the Temple of Theseus, was the outcome of general appreciation of the Earl's distinguished services to his country. The Earl represented Durham County in Parliament for 15 years, and was subsequently, after being raised to the peerage, Lord Privy Seal, Ambassador Extraordinary and Minister at the Court of St. Petersburg, and Governor-General of Canada. It was estimated that over 30,000 people were present at the foundation ceremony. There are 18 columns on the monument, which is 100 feet in length, 50 feet wide, and the height from the ground is 70 feet at one end and 62 feet at the other. The inquest on the boy will be held today. By the 1930s, the monument had fallen into a state of disrepair and was fenced off for safety, with the site then acquired in 1939 by the National Trust. The trust then undertook repairs, but then in 1942 lightning struck one of the pillars. The trust have maintained the monument since, despite nature's best efforts, and works include adding floodlights in 1988 so that onlookers far and wide can enjoy the monument at night. The walkway was reopened in 2011 for supervised tours only. Local legend has it that the monument is haunted, though finding anything other than fleeting references to such activity has been nigh on impossible. However, the hill itself on which the monument was built was once said to be home of fairies. Not the Disney Tinkerbell sort, but rather the kill you dead, steal your children, or put your eyes out if you looked at them wrong sort. The folklorist Brocky, writing in 1886, named a number of fairy hills throughout the north, once believed to be home to the fae, including a hill between Hetton and Embleton in Northumberland, Billingham in County Durham, and Tower Hill in Middleton and Teesdale. Penshaw, he said, was home to fairies, and moreover one of their hills for churning butter and baking bread. So, the tale goes, one evening a local man was passing the hill, and he heard one of the fairies exclaim, Mend that peel! A peel was the tool used to slide bread in and out of an oven. The next day he passed again, and found a broken peel awaiting him. Not wishing to incite the wrath of the fairy bakers, he mended the tool as instructed and left it for them, going about his business. The day after that, he once again passed by the hill leading his cart and horses, and to his horror, there in front of him by the hedge 
was a tasty looking treat of fresh bread slathered with butter. Thinking that the fairies were tempting him, he ignored the bread and made to get out of the area as quickly as possible, but by doing so actually angered the fairies who had left the treat out for him as a thanks for mending their peel. So just as he thought he was home free, his horses simply dropped dead on the road. There is another story often associated with Penshaw Monument, that being the tale of the Lambton Worm. Certainly as a child in the 1980s, I was told that the story related to Penshaw Hill, even though originally the story revolved around the aptly named Worm Hill, located one and a half miles west of Penshaw Monument. The Lambton Worm was said to be a monstrous serpent or dragon that coiled itself around the hill. Penshaw Hill does house what is suspected to be an Iron Age hill fort, with earthworks comprising the fort ramparts actually being described in folklore as the indentations caused by the creature constricting the hill. However, the link to Penshaw appears to be local legend appropriation to increase footfall at Penshaw Monument, with the original tales and stories throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries marking Worm Hill at Fatfield as the actual site, where the creature was said to have coiled itself around the hill. There are, of course, a number of different versions of the story about the worm and Lord Lambton, but for something a little different, I thought I'd read the version told in the 15th of December 1838 edition of the Westmoreland Gazette, entitled simply The Lambton Worm. In the garden house at Lambton, in the county of Durham, are two strange-looking figures. One represents a knight-armed capapee, the back studded with razor blades, who holds a worm by one ear with his left hand and with his right hand has his sword crammed to the hilt down its throat. The other figure is a lady who wears a coronet with bare breasts in the style of Charles II's beauties, a wound on whose bosom and an accidental mutilation of the hand are said to have been the work of the worm. The history of these figures is popular provincial romance, which is well related by the learned Surtees. We shall, however, first premise that it belongs to that class of household tales so frequent in the history of ancient families, and handed down from generation to generation orally, not then having the invention and facilities of the printing press to give them stability and to posterity. We have little doubt but worms and dragons and giants were the allegorical representations of some foreign or domestic tyrant, and the hero's noble and patriotic individuals. The legend is thus related. The heir of Lambton fishing, as was his profane custom in the weir on a Sunday, hooked a small worm which he carelessly threw into a well, and thought no more of the adventure. The worm, at first neglected, grew till it was too large for its first habitation, and issued forth from the worm well, betook itself to the weir, where it usually lay a part of the day coiled round a crag in the middle of the water. It also frequented a green mound near the well, the Worm Hill where it lapped itself nine times round, leaving vermicular traces, of which grave living witnesses depose that they have seen the vestiges. It now became the terror of the country, and amongst other enormities, levied a daily contribution of nine cows' milk, which was always placed for it at the green hill, and in default, it devoured man and beast. Young Lambton had, it seems, meanwhile, totally repented him of his former life and conversation, and had bathed himself in a bath of holy water, taken the sign of the cross, and joined the crusaders. On his return home, he was extremely shocked at witnessing the effects of his youthful imprudencies, and immediately undertook the adventure. After several fierce combats in which the crusader was foiled by his enemy's power of self-union, 
he found it expedient to add policy to courage, and not perhaps possessing much of the former quality, he went to consult a witch or wise woman. By her judicious advice, he armed himself with a coat of mail studded with razor blades, and thus prepared, placed himself on the crag in the river and awaited the monster's arrival. At the usual time the worm came to the rock and wound himself with great fury round the armed knight, who had the satisfaction to see the enemy cut in pieces by his own efforts, whilst the stream washing away the several parts prevented the possibility of reunion. There is still a sequel to the story. The witch had promised Lambton success only on one condition, that he should slay the first living thing which met his sight after the victory. To avoid that possibility of human slaughter, Lambton had directed his father that, as soon as he heard him sound three blasts in his bugle in token of the achievement performed, he should release his favourite greyhound, which would immediately fly to the sound of the horn and was destined to be the sacrifice. On hearing his son's bugle, however, the old chief was so overjoyed that he forgot his injunctions and ran himself with open arms to meet his son. Instead of committing a patricide, the conqueror again repaired to his adviser, who pronounced, as the alternative of disobeying the original instructions, that no chief of the Lamptons should die in his bed for seven, or as some accounts say for nine, generations. Various facts have been pressed into the service to establish the combination of sudden death that has been supposed to hang over the family. Today's From the Archives comes from the Saturday 2nd of October 1847 edition of the Newcastle Guardian and Tyne Mercury, and is simply called A Buried Woman Alive. Truth is strange, stranger than fiction, and the following story is not more extraordinary than true. Two or three weeks ago, the daughter of an old soldier, who resides in Miller Street, the northeastern part of Glasgow, was seized with fever and was conveyed to one of the hospitals. The old man, of course, made frequent inquiries at the hospital as to the progress of the disease, and was pained to learn on every visit that his daughter was gradually getting worse. At last he received the melancholy information that she was dead. The necessary arrangements were made for the funeral, and the body was interred at Sight Hill Cemetery on Tuesday of last week. On Tuesday last, while the mother of the buried woman was engaged in her usual household avocations, the door slowly opened, and lo, there entered, pale and emaciated, the figure of her dead daughter, which uttered the word mother. "'Your father buried you last week!' exclaimed the affrighted mother, and having thus endeavoured to lay the ghost, fainted. On coming to her senses, and observing the unwelcome visitor sitting in the house, she rushed down the stairs to the workshop of her husband, and exclaimed, in the same voice of extreme terror, "'Oh, the daughter you buried last week is sitting upstairs!' and she went off in another fit, while the husband in terror and surprise had dropped the implements of his craft, with which at the time he was engaged. When the old couple had recovered a little self-possession, neighbours were called in, the haunted house was entered, and there sat, not an intrusive ill-bred ghost, but the veritable daughter, pale and thin, but as truly in life as she ever was. Here was a mystery not easily to be solved at the moment, but subsequent inquiries showed that the daughter, and an Irishwoman of nearly similar name lay in the hospital next to bed to each other. Hence the mistake of the father, being misinformed as to the state of his daughter's health, and when the Irishwoman died her body was given to the supposed father, and from the circumstance of the virulence of the disease, 
interred without identification. Today's second story takes us to Nairsdale Hall in Northumberland. During the 13th century, the Pratt family had a seat at Nairsdale, now in Northumberland, but then under Scottish rule, on a site four miles south of Haltwhistle. All that remains of this building now is a steep-sided mound, and there's some discussion among historians whether or not the site held a timber hall or was a stone peel tower. According to the historian Hodgson, the Pratts passed the land to the Swinburne family in the year 1257 AD. In 1383, Nairsdale passed to the Clifford family. By the 16th century, the lands were owned by the Wallace family, or Wallace family, depending on the source. Edward Wallace was Lord of Nairsdale in 1586, based on an historic will of the same year. In 1614, William Wallace of Nairsdale married Eleanor, co-heir of John Swinburne of Nafferton and Edlegem, and in 1619, George Wallace aided in rebuilding of Copeland Castle, now called Coupland, in Northumberland, which was owned by the Greys of Chillingham. The current Nairsdale Hall, a Grade II listed building, now Nairsdale Hall Farm, has its origins in the 17th century and seems to have replaced the medieval structure there. In 1730, Ralph Wallace then conveyed his estate to John Stevenson Esquire, the then Sheriff of Newcastle. John's heirs then resold Nairsdale back to the Wallace family in 1769. When Hodgson was writing his history of Northumberland in 1840, he described the hall as Nairsdale Hall is a gentleman's place of the 17th century, now and for a long time since, occupied by the farmer of the adjoining grounds, and consequently despoiled of any appendages to the dignity it was wont to assume while it was the seat of the Lord of the Fee of Nairsdale and its contiguous domain. The garden walls have lost their trimness, the malt kiln and brew house are gone, and little now remains but the usual extensive suite of stables, which in gone by times were at once the joy and ruin of the old race of country squires. Its site, however, is still the same on a proud natural knoll between the Milburn and the Tyne, and defended on every side, but on the line of approach by steep banks and overlooking upwards and downwards the green hoffs and woody braes of the Tyne. Behind it, at a short distance, the Thin Hope, or as they call it here, the Milburn, rushes over its stony bed, through a park interspersed and sheltered with a wood of venerable oaks and other indigenous forest trees. Now from history we pass across to ghost lore. The ghost tale of Nairsdale bears all the markings of your classic haunting, with murder striking amid stormy weather while thunder clashed and lightning lit the hall and surrounding forest. The date of the first telling of the tale is unknown, though I have found references to it as far back as 1845. It begins with a young pretty girl catching the eye of the much older lord of the manor, and despite her protests, he gained consent to marry her from her parents, presumably aided by the prospect of riches and an easier life. The resulting marriage split the peaceful silence of the hall. The newlyweds often argued and fought, as the lord was used to getting his own way and his young bride would have none of it. Then came the visitors. The lord's niece and nephew came to stay at the hall, and the lord breathed a sigh of relief as his young wife appeared to not wish to air their feud in front of family, and calm settled over Nairsdale Hall. Or so it seemed. Unknown to the rest of the household, the young wife and her husband's visiting nephew had become a rather steamy and passionate affair. The couple made a pact to keep their activities from the lord of the manor, as the nephew didn't want to be disowned and the young wife feared an even worse fate. 
One day, though, they forgot to lock the door to the room in which they were undertaking their festivities, and the Lord's young niece walked in on them. Somewhat embarrassed at seeing her brother with her aunt, the girl fled into the house. Her brother quickly caught up with her, and she agreed not to say anything about what she'd just seen. However, as with so many lies and deceits, the lover's deception clouded their minds, and each time the niece spoke to her uncle, they thought they'd had it. But each time the niece said nothing, and they breathed a sigh of relief. Though the lie they were living and the threat overhanging them grew a darkness in their mind that soon turned to murder. The young wife and the nephew plotted and planned, and the nephew suggested that the only way to ensure his sister's silence was to make sure she no longer had a voice. Soon after this decision was made, a great storm hit the area, and the young wife, hearing a door banging from one of the outbuildings, asked her husband to get his niece to close it as the servants had already retired to their beds. Dutifully, the young niece, wrapped in a cloak, headed out into the storm to find the offending door. Only to be waylaid by her brother, and after a brief struggle, he threw her into a pond by the hall, where he held her under until she drowned. Knowing nothing of this, the lord of the manor fell asleep, only to be awoken in the middle of the night by the howl of one of his dogs, and there by the kitchen fireplace was the spectre of his niece, wringing water out of her hair. As he approached to speak with her, she simply vanished. With a loud roar, the lord shouted and his servants clambered from their beds, where they were given instructions to find the girl and headed out into the storm, all to no avail. After that night, it is said that Nairsdale Hall seemed cursed, with all joy seeping from the place and people. The lord continued the search, and meanwhile his young wife, racked with guilt, fell ill and eventually became feverish. Some say her sanity was shattered, and in her ravings she often spoke of the pond. Horror filled her husband's heart, and he ordered the pond searched, where the remains of the drowned girl were found. Soon afterwards, the young wife died of brain fever, but the fate of her murderous lover is unknown. However, it seems that merrily finding the body, and giving her a Christian burial was not enough to give the ghostly niece peace. It is said that on the anniversary of her death she can be seen, sodden and trailing mud and water in the area that once held the pond, that even up to the mid-nineteenth century the main door of the house was said to be flung open by unseen forces on that anniversary night, though by 1891 it was suggested that the door in question had been blocked up with stone. On the 24th of September 1933, the Sunday Sun suggested that the ghost has often been reported in the Nairsdale Hall district, a mournful sodden figure trailing across the ground and then suddenly disappearing at the spot where the old pond stood. Perhaps one day she will make her peace with her murderers, and then South Tyndale will know her no more. Today's superstition comes from the transactions of the Tyneside Naturalists Field Club, 1846-64. To draw blood above the mouth is a mode of breaking some spells. A tenant of Sir Charles Monk, who lived at Belsay Bankfoot, had a cow that got a leg broken a horse that got stuck, and a calf that died of the quarter ill. All these misfortunes came upon him at the same time. There could be no doubt someone had bewitched these animals. At last a new servant, quite a youth, was blamed. A person skilled in these things was told the farmer he might break the spell simply by drawing blood above the wizard's mouth. At foddering time, the farmer purposely quarrelled with the poor lad about some trifle, and before the lad knew what it was all about, he drew blood above his mouth by making his nose bleed and scratching his face. 
To use a phrase of the day, it was a great success, and the farmer throve ever after. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you'd like more information on the Within the Boggartwood project, please visit the website at theboggartwood.uk or have a look at the project social media. There's a Facebook group, Facebook page, Patreon and Instagram. I've also got a Mastodon account, though as I'd completely forgotten I had one, there's not much on there yet. Until next time, have a good week and stay safe. <laughs>